Please stand for the reading of the Old Testament. Today's lesson is from Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. The New Testament lesson for this Lord's Day is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much so as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament 
and ask that you give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. The veil between the seen and the unseen has been lifted. The heavenly court is in session. The Lord is on his throne and legions of angels are present. Summoned by God, Satan comes before the court as the accuser of God's people. But this time, the Lord directs Satan's attention to his righteous servant, Job. Seeing an opportunity to attack the foundation of the gospel, Satan takes up the Lord's challenge, calling into question Job's righteousness. According to the accuser, Job is a hypocrite. Job is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil only because God bribes him to do so by giving Job great wealth and personal comfort. Take all these things away, Satan argues, and Job's supposed piety will be exposed for what it is, a lie. And so, with God's challenge issued and accepted by Satan, the wisdom and goodness of God is at stake. Job must enter into a trial by ordeal. He must endure, and he must emerge victorious, so that God's wisdom will be vindicated, and that his ways, mysterious as they may be, will be proven right. Now, as we return to our series on the book of Job, we come to that section of Job where the mysterious purpose underlying Job's horrific ordeal is revealed to us. This involves the vindication of God's wisdom and the dealing with all his creatures, especially as it relates to the gospel and God's redemption of sinners. As we will see in our text this morning, you'll need to take out your Bibles. We'll work from Job chapter 1, verse 6 through to chapter 2, verse 10. Job will lose everything he has except his life, his wife, and three of his friends. And as the scope of the disaster faced by Job becomes fully apparent, the reader begins to realize that Job would be much better off without his wife and friends as well, since his wife behaves like Eve, unwittingly serving the purposes of the devil. And his friends only contribute to Job's suffering through their seemingly wise but utterly flawed theological counsel. Now the story of Job is the classic tale of the suffering of a righteous man. But the account of Job's trial by ordeal is also given to us by God to reveal something to us far less obvious, but every bit as important as offering comfort to those who suffer. As the story of Job unfolds, we will see that God's wisdom is ultimately revealed in a perfectly just and infinitely merciful Savior, whose ways may be mysterious, but which are always proved righteous. Not only does the book of Job force us to wrestle with the question, why do the righteous suffer? But the answer that Job learns through his own sufferings is that God is righteous in all his dealings with his creatures, and he always does what is right, even if that is beyond our understanding. And so the awareness of this great truth forces us to bow the knees to the one who has created us, who has ordained all of the circumstances of our lives, who has determined the number of our days, 
and who then sent his own sinless son to save us from the consequences of human sin and finity. In the story of Job, beloved, we not only encounter the story of the suffering of the righteous and the mystery of suffering, we also encounter the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ in whom all these mysteries of human existence are fully and finally answered. Now recall from our introductory sermon that the book of Job is not a book of apologetics designed to answer the question about the problem of evil. Rather, the book of Job is an account of the suffering of a righteous man who had done nothing whatsoever to deserve the horrific ordeal he's about to endure. In his suffering, Job is not only an example to us of how we should face suffering should God bring suffering into our lives, but Job also plays a very important role in redemptive history. Now, the first man, Adam, you know, failed during his time of testing in Eden, thereby plunging the entire human race into sin. But once Adam had rebelled against God and the gospel had been preached to him in Genesis 3.15, Job now must endure a time of testing so as to vindicate God's righteous dealing with sinners. Job must do this not only to confound Satan's attack upon the gospel, but also to reveal to the human race that through his own suffering and upright conduct, a righteousness is even now being revealed, which points us ahead to the perfect and faultless righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam yet to come. As Job endures the loss of his health and all he owns, God triumphs over Satan's hatred of the gospel and his contempt for the human race. As Job endures in the midst of his suffering, we get our first glimpse as to how God will fulfill all righteousness and crush the head of the serpent. In the trial and ordeal of Job, we see what is required for sinners to be justified, the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ. Now that the story of Job is on one level, a story about the gospel can be seen in the opening words of this great book. In Job 1.1, we read that Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. Like Abraham, who lived about the same time, Job believed God's promise to provide a redeemer to take away the guilt of his sins and was justified through the means of faith and on the accounts of the merits and righteousness of a coming redeemer. Jesus Christ. But Job's faith in the promised Redeemer bore much fruit, as seen in Job's life of gratitude lived before a gracious God. So much so, so great was Job's piety that he was widely known, and Job was admired by everyone who knew him. We have seen how Job acted as the priest of his family, regularly offering burnt offerings for sacrifices on behalf of his seven sons, and three daughters, whom Job obviously loved very dearly. Job was so pious, there was so much fruit of the Holy Spirit in Job's life, that the Lord himself can say about Job, there is no one else like him on the earth. A wealthy man, Job owned large numbers of animals. He employed many servants. He was considered the greatest man among all the people of the East. And all of this was the fruit of Job's faith in God's promise to provide a Redeemer who would save him from his sins. But before we take up the scene before the heavenly court and look at the results of the decree that is issued by that court, 
we need to keep in mind that the readers of this book know what Job does not know. Job doesn't know about the courtroom scene, nor does Job even have any hint about this challenge issued by the devil. Job has no idea of what is about to befall him. Nor does Job know the reason why a series of horrible things will take place, leaving him sick and with nothing. All Job knows after losing everything is that somehow and in some way, God will do what is right, and Job will be vindicated in the end. And in this, beloved, Job is an example for all of us. Despite the temptation to dwell on the past, and despite the counsel given to him by his friends to look back at his own life to find the reason as to why he's lost everything, okay, Job, what did you do that brought all this about? What sin are you hiding from all of us? Instead, Job looks ahead to the future. It is Job who tells us in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that in the end, He will stand upon the earth, and I will see Him with my own eyes and my own flesh. It is Job, while in the midst of pain and loss beyond our imagination, it is Job who points us to a coming Redeemer. When his wife tells him to go ahead and curse God and die, when his friends are telling him that he's only getting what he deserved, it is Job who refuses to blame God and instead praises the name of the Lord. It is the suffering and miserable Job who is both a type of Christ, the true man of sorrows, as well as a prophet who directs our gaze ahead to that final day when God will indeed turn all suffering to good. Well, with that, we now turn to the first part of our text this morning, verses 6 through 12 of chapter 1, where the divine purpose underlying Job's ordeal is revealed to us. Now, while the first five verses of Job tell us something about the man and about his particular circumstances, beginning in verse 6 of the opening chapter, the scene shifts to the heavenly court, which is in session. And so we read that, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now this is one of the few passages in the Bible where the veil is removed from the angelic world, which is otherwise hidden from our eyes. And when the veil is lifted, we see that Yahweh is on the throne, ruling over all and surrounded by the hosts of heaven. The scene is reminiscent of Zechariah 3, uh, that passage we consider during Holy Week when Satan brings charges against Joshua, Israel's high priest. In Job, Satan is the accuser. More literally, he is the adversary. And his appearance before the court most likely means that the devil is obligated to appear before the heavenly court when summoned by God. And it's also clear from what transpires that Satan cannot touch Job until given permission to do so. God's sovereignty over all things is absolute, including the activities and operations of the devil. As Martin Luther once so aptly put it, the devil is God's devil. That is, Satan cannot do anything which God does not permit him to do. Satan is a creature. He's bound to submit to God, and he's not in any sense God's equal. But our situation is quite unlike that of Job. Job lived before the coming of Christ and the cross, 
while we live in that period of redemptive history after Christ has crushed Satan's head. And so as we read in our New Testament lesson this morning from Revelation chapter 12, with the coming of Jesus Christ, Satan has been cast from heaven. He's been bounced out of the heavenly court and he no longer has access to the throne of God. In Revelation 12, verses 7 and 9, we read about a war in heaven. And Michael and his archangels fought against the devil and the dragon, and the angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon, Satan, the accuser, the adversary, was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. Furthermore, we know from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, that Satan presently is bound to the great abyss and can no longer organize the nations against the church nor the gospel. And so the eviction of Satan from the heavenly court is important for two accounts because first it means that Satan no longer has access to the throne of God. He can no longer accuse us as he did Job or the high priest. He can no longer barter or bargain with God about our particular circumstances. And so if we suffer, it's not because the circumstances involved are beyond the control of God, as if the devil was free to do with us whatever he wanted. Satan is now a defeated foe. He is utterly humiliated by the cross of Jesus Christ. And second, we need to consider that Satan is now cast to earth, where he wages a furious war against the church through the propagation of lies and heresies. Since Satan is elsewhere called the father of lies, and since he was a liar from the beginning. In Revelation 12, verse 12, we read that Satan is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And so having been defeated and knowing that his doom is sure, Satan is like a wounded animal, perhaps now more dangerous than he was before. And so after the cross, his weapons are not lightning or whirlwinds or boils but heresy and schism in the church. It is Satan who will do everything in his power to trick us into despair by propagating lies about God. That's what Satan does after he's been cast from heaven. And so as we glimpse the heavenly court described in Job 1 verse 7, we read that the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. This is but another way of affirming what Peter declares of the devil in 1 Peter 5.8, Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion running around looking for someone whom he may devour. And so the Lord now directs Satan's attention to the man Job, whom one writer describes as a creation of God's redemptive grace. As a fallen son of Adam, Job has been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And Job now manifests in his life the fruit of the Spirit. And thus we read in verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, this remarkable assertion goes beyond the declaration in verse 1. Not only is Job blameless and upright, his piety is so great that the Lord himself can say of Job, there's no one on the earth like him. This man is the apple of God's eye, and he manifests to us a faint glimmer of that perfect righteousness we will later see in the life of Jesus Christ. 
So in that similar scene from Zechariah chapter 3, Satan can find all kinds of sin in Joshua the high priest. And in that instance, you'll recall that the Lord's response was to strip off the high priest's filthy garments and to give him clean ones, pointing us ahead to that glorious and faultless righteousness of Christ. But here, Satan can find nothing in Job's life that he can point out and condemn. And so Job's piety, the fruit of justifying faith, is truly remarkable. There's no one else on earth like this man. Now, since Job is blameless and upright, Satan takes another tact. He attacks Job's righteous behavior, contending that this faultlessness and blamelessness is not really sincere. Job is being bribed with wealth and pleasure. All he has to do is behave, and the Lord rewards him. Job, Satan reasons, isn't obedient because he loves God. Rather, in his twisted mind, Satan reasons that Job is obedient because he loves all the good things that God has given to him. And so take away all the goodies, Satan contends, and Job's piety will quickly disappear. God's plan, then, to redeem sinners will be exposed to be a failure. And so in verses 9 through 11, Satan responds to God's question by taking up the challenge. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. Now it's important that we not miss that this is the exact opposite to the approach Satan took in Eden. In Eden, the devil appeared to Adam and attacked the righteous ways of God. But here the devil appears before God and attacks the righteous man. Now, despite the difference in the point of attack, the basic tactics the devil uses are still the same. Satan starts with a very subtle, seemingly innocuous question, but draws the most blasphemous of conclusions. Job is not righteous. He loves those things given to him by God. And God is not righteous. He's a cosmic blackmailer. Take away Job's possessions. And Job's piety will vanish. And God's method of redeeming sinners will be shown to be an abject failure. Bribery may get superficial results, but divine bribery cannot ultimately redeem a sinner. And therefore, we can't miss the fact as the story proceeds that by afflicting Job, Satan is attacking the very foundation of the gospel, the mercy and justice of God. Now notice that all of what follows in the trials and travails of Job stems from a sovereign act of God. It is God who directs Satan's attention to Job, unlike the account in Zechariah 3 where Satan comes and tattles on Israel's high priest because of his sins. Here we read in verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on that man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what follows, beloved, is the account then of Job's trial by ordeal, a trial that he must endure in order to vindicate God's redemption of sinners. Now, everyone here this morning has suffered. Everyone here this morning has lost something that we prize. Some of us have suffered great loss. Some of us live in constant pain, but there is no one here this morning who has lost as much as Job. 
like a series of tsunamis. The bad news of Satan's handiwork begins to come wave after wave after wave in an almost unrelenting and dramatic fashion. And so as we pick up the account in verse 13, we read that one day, which is probably after Job had offered burnt offerings, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. Now the Sabaeans are Arab Bedouins. They not only take all of Job's livestock, they kill his servants. That's only the beginning. According to verse 16, the earth itself now seems to turn against Job. And while he, the first messenger, was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God, which is probably a reference to a lightning storm, fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. A devastating blow, but another wave of bad news is still to hit. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. But it's still not over. One more, even more painful blow is soon to fall. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. In a span of just moments... Job learns that all of his wealth has been destroyed or stolen and the joy of his life, his seven sons and three daughters, they have been taken from him. Only the messengers have been spared to bring Job this awful news that the accumulated fruit of a lifetime of work is now gone. Marauding enemies and nature itself have seemingly conspired to wreak havoc on Job. But it's important to notice that the way in which this bad news comes about conceals the hand of God and the hand of Satan. Remember, Job knows not of the heavenly scene. Job knows nothing about the permission given Satan to afflict him. Now, if Job were an atheist, he would have had a perfectly ready explanation for what just happened. The world is a pretty cruel place. If Job were a polytheist or he believed in many gods or a dualist between good and evil or a materialist or a fatalist. He would have had a ready explanation for what's just happened. Look, it's human weakness or it's the forces of nature. But Job believes in the living God who is sovereign over all the forces of nature, who is sovereign over all those enemies to the east. Job knows that his God is supremely good and therefore Job knows instantly that those things that have befallen him are only because the good and almighty God has brought these things to pass or else has permitted them to happen. And that brings us to the mystery of the suffering of the righteous. Now, the knowledge that God is both good and sovereign serves as the basis for Job's reaction to this horrible news which is recounted to us in verses 20 through 21. At this... Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. 
which was a common gesture of grief. And overcome, we read that Job fell to the ground, not in cursing or anger, but in worship, and said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised even as the reader's heart aches for Job. Job, this grief-stricken man, still utters words of faith. As one writer puts it, Job knows that a man may stand before God, stripped of everything, and yet still lack nothing. Surely this is the sentiment expressed in Psalm 73, verse 25, when the psalmist cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. And yet Job's faith does not relieve his suffering. Job's faith only makes his suffering worse. The God whom Job loves has brought this to pass. Job has known, done nothing to deserve what has happened, and still Job praises God. And so as we read in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job knows there's a reason for this situation, even if he must wait to discover it. And thus, out of a broken heart, crushed, pours a doxology of praise at the news of this horrible loss. But Job's ordeal is far from over. Things are only going to get worse. A second satanically inflicted ordeal is about to befall this righteous man. And the tension and the drama in the story only increases. And so as we turn to chapter 2, a second heavenly scene is revealed. And Satan is again summoned before the heavenly court, but notice this time he's strangely silent about the results of Job's first ordeal. It is the Lord who once again calls Satan's attention to what has happened to his servant Job. And so as you read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, on another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present him before him, to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my righteous servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Job is clearly innocent, for he's blameless and upright, even though his life has been ruined without reason. Now the depths of Satan's cynicism begin to become apparent in verse 4. Job has praised the Lord, acknowledging that he came into the world naked, and he's going to depart from the world naked as well. And Satan sees all of that as nothing but a shrewd attempt to conceal his bitterness and hide from God his bitterness, so that he can bargain with God for his health. As Meredith Klein points out, Satan sees Job's praise in the midst of loss as a kind of health insurance. And thus in verse 4 we read that Satan's focus now moves to Job's physical well-being. Skin for skin, Satan replied. Probably a parody of Job's words about being born and then dying naked. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and surely he will curse you to your face. Okay, Satan reasons. Job can withstand the loss of his possessions. He can withstand the loss of his children. 
but he'll not be able to cope with the loss of his health. Remove Job's good health, and he'll curse God. And so with the challenge issued and accepted, God again permits the mystery of affliction to engulf his servant. According to verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Now, as you may know, there's great speculation about the precise nature of Job's illness. Some have thought it's boils or elephantitis or leprosy. It's difficult to diagnose the exact malady that Job has. But we do know It is so bad and so acute that the only relief Job can find from his suffering is to scrape his skin with pieces of broken pottery. We also know from later references in the book that the disease included darkened skin, skin that peeled and rotted. And yes, I hate to even utter the words, but it's in the text, maggot-infested sores. This is not a pretty sight. The very image of the greatest man in the East, reduced to such a pitiful and miserable state, shocked everyone. And given the nature of Job's illness and the fear that this guy might be contagious, Job is now forced to move to the town Trash Heap, which served as both the town Dump and the town Dunghill. Job has gone from the greatest man of the East to living in the Trash Heap. Now, in verse 9, we learn why Satan didn't take the life of Job's wife. Mrs. Job reminds us very much of Eve, having given in to the devil's temptation, and even now, if unwittingly, serving as an instrument of the undoing of her own husband. And her advice to her husband is exactly what Satan wants. For as we read in verse 9, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now these words echo the hope that Satan would somehow enable Job through all the suffering to curse God and then to his face once his health had been taken from him. And so with these words, Job's trial becomes perhaps its most acute. His own wife, the mother of his children, wants him to curse God and then die. His own wife must think that Job's holding on to some secret sin that no one knows about. Again, we see why Job was the apple of God's eye and why the Lord pointed him out to the accuser. Because Job replies with the greatest restraint to this unwitting foil of the devil. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, Job does not speak evil of his wife, only of her behavior. And the great paradox in all of this is that Mrs. Job lacks wisdom, the very thing that God is even then displaying in infinite measure. And Job knows that he's received so many good things from the hands of the Lord. He is fully prepared to receive calamity when the Lord sends that as well. And Satan's hope, his great hope, that somehow or another, Job would curse God to his face, has come to naught. 
Beloved, in this we see that a righteousness from God is even now being revealed in the struggles and in the obedience of Job. We're being pointed to the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ himself. And so what then do we learn from this account of Job and the loss of all of his possessions, the death of his precious children, and the loss of his health? Well, as we look at the story of Job in light of the big picture of redemptive history, the story really begins when Satan deceived Eve and then enticed her husband Adam to eat the forbidden fruit and to plunge the entire human race into sin. But as soon as Adam fell, as soon as he rebelled, God preached the gospel to him, promising to redeem him from his sins through the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head although the Redeemer himself would be wounded in the process. And so now in this second ordeal, the ordeal of Job, Satan thinks that he can overturn this promise of redemption by exposing God's plan of salvation as nothing but cosmic bribery. And so when God summons Satan and asks him to consider his righteous servant Job, Satan takes the bait. When Satan attacks Job, he is attacking God's promise to save sinners. And we have to see that if we are to understand this book. But unlike Adam, the sinner Job stands triumphant while the righteous man Adam fell. Not only does Job's faith lead him to praise God even in the midst of his trial, but Job's actions thoroughly confound the devil's attack upon the gospel while at the same time giving proof that God does indeed give to sinners a justifying righteousness through the perfect obedience of a second Adam yet to come. In Job's triumph in the midst of this horrible ordeal, we see that a righteousness is being revealed, which is superior to Adam's, and which can withstand even the greatest of satanic assaults. Satan's rage cannot overcome the wisdom and justice of God. Job doesn't like, Job doesn't understand what's happened. He's utterly heartbroken. He is completely and totally bewildered. His suffering is beyond our comprehension. But Job knows that the same God who gave him all good things, he will redeem him and he will deliver him from whatever may befall him. Take everything Job has away from him, and he still praises the God who made him and who will redeem him. In Job's ordeal, we see the triumph of God's grace, and we learn that we too must be willing to accept those trials that God sends along with the good that so richly overflows to us. Beloved, in the ordeal of Job, we see the words of Romans 8, 28-39 wonderfully fulfilled. You know these words. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? 
No, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Job has lost everything. He is devastated and grief-stricken beyond words. He has gone from being the greatest man in the East to living on the town Dunghill, scratching his skin with pieces of pottery. But despite all of that, nothing can separate Job from the love of God, certainly not the scheming of Satan. Despite every appearance to the contrary, Job is more than a conqueror. And so are we if our trust is in Jesus Christ. For, beloved, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not sickness, not loss, not even death. God has not promised that we will not suffer, but he has promised that he will turn all our suffering and loss to good. And that's what we learn from the suffering of Job, because Job is not only a type of Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows. Job is a prophet who points us ahead to the suffering and dying of that Savior, that one whose suffering redeems us from our sins, that Savior who knows what human suffering is like and who promises us that as we suffer, He will indeed restore us and He will vindicate our good name in the end. Amen.